Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I'm your host for Bookend, sponsored by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Randall Monroe, the number one New York Times bestselling author of What If and Things Explainer, the science question and answer blog What If and the webcomic XKCD. His most recent book is How To, Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real-World Problems, published by our friends at Riverhead Books. Randall, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Randall, my first question is about your previous life. You were a roboticist for NASA until you left the agency in 2006 to draw comics on the internet. First, what does a roboticist for NASA do? And second, what was behind your decision to say, the NASA folks are all right, but what I really want to do is draw comics on the internet? Um, you know, sometimes people call me a scientist, and I'm like, well, I'm not really a scientist. I have an undergraduate degree. You know, I appreciate the vote of confidence. But um, the one, I feel like the one job title that I'm comfortable claiming is roboticist, just because it's such a cool word that I feel like if you have an excuse to use it, you should use it. Um, so I worked on robot navigation. You know, I could, I guess you could say engineer or like software, hardware developer, whatever. Um, but I was basically just uh, trying to teach these demonstration robots to avoid running into walls and, uh, and, and do some cool navigation stuff. Um, and I was working at NASA Langley Research Center on a contract basis. So they were renewing my contract every so often. And at the same time, I had been posting comics on the internet uh, just for fun. And as that started to take off, when one of my contracts ran out and they decided not to renew that project, uh, I just decided to hold off on trying to get a new project to try this comics thing um, and, and then really never looked back. Uh, Excellent. Thank you so much, Randall. And in the disclaimer uh, to your new book, your message is, do not try this at home. The author of this book is an internet cartoonist, not a health or safety expert. He likes it when things catch fire or explode, which means he does not have your best interests in mind. This is a solid disclaimer, but so much of this book is very instructional by way of being informational. Do you really not have the reader's best interests in mind? <laughs> Uh, I'll at least say that I don't cover my bases here, but most of the stuff that you could conceivably try, um, it's hard to come up with a better warning, a better explanation of why you shouldn't than the book itself. Um, you know, it, I talk about, could you make your own snow for skiing and dispense the snow in front of you to make a carpet that you can ski on even if there's no snow on the mountain? Um, and you maybe could, but... If it involves a lot of liquid oxygen and, uh, you know, it, I lay out, here's how expensive it would be, here's how unsatisfying it would be, here's how much equipment you'd have to drag around, and it may explode and catch on fire. So I feel like you don't need an extra disclaimer to tell people that that's not a good idea. It's like you, you, you get to see why it's not a good idea, just how much it would cost and how inefficient it would be and how annoying it would be and the problems you'd run into. Um, and then a lot of the stuff... Uh, there's um, there's not really a lot of concern that people would try it. Um, one of my favorites is about how to get to meetings on time mm -hmm. by making use of, first of all, the you can get Congress or the Secretary of Transportation to adjust the time zone you're in, which is really cool. And I never knew that the Secretary of Transportation had that unilateral authority. It seems uh, like a neat perk of the job. But 
uh, you could also try to tinker with the world's atomic clocks. And I lay out a way you might do that by, you know, moving heavy weights near them to use the gravitational time dilation to change the rate at which the clocks run. And you'd only gain maybe, a, you know, a handful of nanoseconds or microseconds every century. Uh, but if you want to try it, knock yourself out. Thank you so much. Um, in the beginning of this book, Randall, you write, some ideas that sound ridiculous turn out to be revolutionary. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah. Um, my favorite example of this was, like I, I like, I like physics and math and science because they let you take an idea that you're like, that might work, I'm not sure, and let you like play it out uh, on paper and try to figure out whether it would work or not. And sometimes that answer can be surprising. Uh, my favorite example is when NASA was landing the Curiosity rover on Mars, the, all of their ideas for how to put it down safely on the surface ran into some kind of uh, uh, unsolvable problem. Uh, the parachutes wouldn't slow it down enough because uh, Curiosity was so much heavier than their previous rovers, and they wouldn't slow it down enough to where the airbags that they us usually use would absorb the impact. They thought about doing things like having little rockets on the rover so it could set itself down gently, but it has to do the whole thing on its own autonomously, and the rockets would kick up Mars's dust into the air and make a dust cloud that would make it really hard to land. And at some point, someone came up with what sounds like a bad idea, which they called a sky crane, which is a vehicle that will hover above the surface on rockets but not get low enough to kick up dust. And then it'll unspool a long tether and lower the rover down to the surface like on a fishing rod. Um, and set it down gently. And this all has to happen autonomously, you know, under computer control, because it's, uh, you know, seven light minutes away, which means our commands can't get to it in time to, to steer it. And so this sounds like a ridiculous idea, uh, and it sounded this way to NASA too, but every other idea they tried had a problem, and they couldn't find a problem with the sky crane idea. And so they tried it, and it worked. Uh, so, you know, you never know. Um, most of the ideas in my book are definitely bad, though. I, I checked. And I get to lay out what I learned while trying to figure that out. Thank you so much, Randall. Um, one of the chapters of this book, How To, is how to have a pool party. You start this chapter by pointing out that the difference between an above-ground and a below-ground pool, and then you tell us the many different ways that we could fill this pool up. One suggestion is to order several bottles of water off of the internet, and then you go into details regarding the many different ways that one could open these bottles of water one method being that you could open the bottles using nuclear bombs. And then you go into a somewhat extended commentary regarding the testing of nuclear bombs. Can you talk to us about this a little bit? Yeah, one of my favorite things about researching these questions and these, uh, these tasks is that I'll come up with something that I think is the most ridiculous thing I could possibly uh, uh, come up with. And I think, okay, I've now gone too far down this rabbit hole. I'm going to come back up a little bit toward reality. And then discover that not only have I, uh, am I not the first person to have that idea, but someone has actually tried it. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of these weird engineering things people have tried were, were government research projects during the Cold War. And so there's a paper that was unearthed by uh, the nuclear historian Alex Wellerstein, who sent it to me, that was about uh, the effects of nuclear weapons on commercially packaged beverages. So when I was trying to think, how do you open a whole bunch of bottles of water without unscrewing the cap of each one, which would take a long time, I thought, well, maybe you could get some kind of a sword and cut through the bottles. Um, or you know, you, there are other weapons you could use, other ways to make holes in them. Um, but I discovered that the, that the, uh, the government uh, during the early Cold War years 
tested nuclear weapons on soda bottles from a local convenience store um, and, uh, and beer. And they set them out in the desert. And what I love about these projects is that they had a reason, and there's this lengthy report that lays it out, where they were trying to test the um, whether or not water uh, or fluids, you know, that are found in commercially packaged beverages in a post-attack scenario could be used as a source of hydration, or whether they would mostly be broken or contaminated in some way. So they got acquired a bunch of these uh, drinks from a local uh, retailer and then set them out under a nuclear test site. Uh, and they put some of them on shelves, some of them on the ground. And I love the details in these kinds of tests. They like said, well, you know, maybe the direction of the blast is important. So let's have some of them lying on the ground with the mouth of the bottle pointed toward the epicenter. Some of them sideways, some of them at a 45 degree angle. Like they just tried, we're like covering every little detail they could think of. Um, and then they got the results, which is um, actually most of the drinks were fine. Some of them fell off their shelf uh, and broke that way, but otherwise they mostly came through the nuclear blast intact. Um, and and I, I know the reason they gave in the, in the report, this lengthy report, you can find it on the internet, but um, part of me reading the report wondered if the entire project wasn't concocted as a hasty cover story when someone was caught buying a bunch of drinks on their government account and had to explain why. That does sound like a likely scenario. Thank you, Randall. Um, another chapter in this book is titled How to Jump Really High. My question for you is, if I want to slam dunk a basketball, am I better off wearing a wingsuit or Nickelodeon moon shoes? Oh, man. I, I grew up watching those ads for Nickelodeon moon shoes, and they always looked so cool. I finally got to try a pair, and... I feel like it wasn't as satisfying as I thought it would be from the ads. Um, so I might take my chances with the wingsuit. If you have, really, if you can get an area where the wind is really gusty, that's the trick. Because if you can get some wind under you, you can get wind-assisted uh, takeoff, you might be able to get more, more height and more distance with the, uh, with the wingsuit. If you've got still air, maybe the moon shoes would be a better bet. Uh, although you might, you might need to get uh, more enhanced elastic. I bet if you're an adult using those, they're, uh, they're even less bouncy than they were for kids. All right, listeners, you may see me uh, on the playground in my neighborhood on the basketball courts in a wingsuit next week. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Randall Monroe. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Randall Monroe, author of How To, published by our friends at Riverhead Books. Randall, will this book teach me how to play the piano? Technically, 
Yes. It, uh, playing the piano is easy. You just have to press the keys in the right order for the song that you want to play. Uh, uh, everything else is, you know, learning, learning the exact order of the keys, which you can look up on the internet. Um, what I had fun exploring was, uh, and this is one of the few chapters in this book that was prompted by a question that someone sent in, um, where they, they, someone had asked me, could you extend a piano in either direction? Uh, and what would it be like to play higher and lower frequencies than the piano can already cover? And the, it's really interesting. You could cover, um, you know, the piano has a really wide range. It covers most of the range that, that music, uh, uh, most of the notes that you play in music. But you could extend it in either direction by a few dozen more keys, uh, and it would still be audible to most humans. Um, I got to look in this book at what would happen if you extended it past that. Um, if you extended it off to the right, um, the, the notes are a fixed distance between each other in, in frequency, a fixed uh, ratio. And so you can keep extending the piano keyboard upper and you get higher and higher notes. And you would have a whole section of the keyboard that was outside the range of human hearing, but it would be audible to uh, dogs and bats. Um, and then you reach a certain point where the frequencies are too high to be carried through the air. Uh, and you, if, you could, if you made a higher up uh, key on the piano past a certain limit, the sounds wouldn't be able to escape the piano itself. So you wouldn't be able to play it. At the low end, you can produce infrasound. And this is something that someone could actually do. Uh, there are these uh, uh, subwoofers generally don't go much below what humans are capable of hearing because there's no reason to make a subwoofer that can go below the range humans can hear if your audience is mostly humans. Um, and even elephants and, and some of the bigger animals still can't hear that far below what humans can hear. But there are very low sounds echoing through the atmosphere. And just like how high sounds don't travel very far, the low sounds can circle the entire Earth. Uh, and so if you get a, one of these devices, there, there are these devices that are like subwoofers, but they use a completely different mechanism called rotary woofers. And they can produce sounds of like less than one hertz, you know, one beat, one cycle per second. Uh, and these, these devices, if you hooked one up to a piano, you could play sounds that are so low that they would show up uh, on equipment that is used for monitoring for nuclear tests in the atmosphere and for monitoring uh, meteors as they enter the atmosphere. Uh, and if, so I composed a piece of music in this book, um, which is, it would be inaudible to any human listening and it, uh, and it wouldn't sound that great if you could hear it. Um, and it would take about two hours to play. But if you do play it, uh, and someone is sitting there at their infrasound monitoring equipment looking for nuclear tests, uh, this piece of music will draw out a stick figure on their spectrogram. Nice. Thank you so much, Randall. Um, when I was a child, my grandparents took me on long cross-country trips in an RV, and one time we were hiking on a trail somewhere in Utah, maybe the Arches, and there was a sign that said, Beware of Mountain Lions. And ever since then, I've always believed in uh, the Boy Scout motto, be, be prepared, uh, be prepared for a mountain lion, in other words. And that's why I was delighted to find out um, that this book told me how to be prepared for many things. For example, what could I do if I accidentally got left behind on the ISS when it's being deorbited? Uh, so my question for you here is twofold. A, how did you decide which questions and or scenarios to include in this book? And what should I do if I accidentally get left behind on the ISS when it's being deorbited? Well, 
for picking which question to include in the book, I, I a lot of them are questions, are tasks that I have had to do, and it's kind of, there's an obvious way to do them, but maybe it's a little bit repetitive or tiring or boring, or I don't want to do it for some reason. And I wanted to look at what are some other ways you could do this, or what are some other constraints that you might have that would require you to come up with a more creative solution. Um, there were also a few cases where I found some really interesting research that I, uh, and I would read a paper on something and try to think, how could I apply this uh, to my everyday life? But there were a few questions in this book where I got to reach out to experts who know how to do things, and I got to ask them questions about how they would handle a situation. Uh, and one of my favorites, uh, uh, you know, we I got um, I talked to the the uh, NC State astrophysicist uh, Dr. Katie Mack about how to produce power for my house by collapsing the fabric of space time, um, and I actually got uh, Serena Williams to hit tennis balls at a drone uh, to see if that would be an effective countermeasure against a rogue wedding photography drone. But I think my favorite chapter was when I interviewed astronaut Chris Hadfield. Uh, about how to how to land a variety of vehicles in a bunch of unlikely situations. So I asked him the ISS question, what, what he would do if he got left behind by accident. Maybe he overslept when they were leaving the ISS, and then it was abandoned and it was going to descend into the atmosphere and burn up. And he said what he would do is... Uh, he mentioned there's a particular module where the solar array is attached to the body, which is where there's a large, bulky uh, piece of pieces of metal under the floor. And he says he would strap himself to the himself to those pieces of metal, those where the attachment points are, um, which would uh, 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 give him the best chance wearing a spacesuit of surviving the reentry by being shielded by this piece of metal. Uh, and, and he explained how to put on the spacesuit and everything, uh, but he sounded like it, was, uh, uh, it would take a lot of luck. He was not optimistic. Um, so probably, probably, even no matter how prepared you are, you will not make it down uh, intact. But if you're going to try, if you've got to try somewhere, that's the place to do it, according to one of the world's foremost astronauts. Very good to know. Thank you, Randall. Um, in your chapter on how to cross a river, you mentioned that 87 gigawatts is a lot of power, enough, you write in a footnote, to go back to the future 71 times. Is this something that you were personally experienced with? No, I'm a, I'm a fan of time travel movies in general, and of course the classic Back to the Future, where, where they established for some reason that 1.21 gigawatts was the required uh, power input to power their time machine. So whenever I have a measure in gigawatts, I always want to convert it to, uh, here's how many time-traveling DeLorean cars this could power. Sure, thanks. Um, moving on, there's a chapter in this book about how to predict the weather, and my question is, what will the weather be like in Raleigh 10 days from now? Uh, I don't know, and no one else does either. It's uh, really cool that we can, we can predict short-term weather using physics. Um, the very best forecasts right now go out to about nine or 10 days before they stop being any better than chance. Um, and we can predict long-term changes in weather uh, on average through climate change. It's less certain, it's less definitive than, um, short-term predictions are determined solely by physics and if you gather enough data, you can predict them exactly. Long-term predictions, we can predict on average that it will get warmer. Um, we can't predict what it'll be on a particular day. In the middle term, the next few months, you know, next season, that 
very well maybe impossible to predict. It's uh, governed by by these chaotic systems that maybe have some cycles to them, but to some extent are just fundamentally random. Thank you. And another question from the same chapter. Um, is it really safe to assume that all clever sayings can be attributed to Mark Twain? Everyone seems to do that, either Mark Twain or uh, Oscar Wilde or Dorothy Parker. So just uh, y- if you say that they said something, it just everyone seems to accept it and then repeat it. And if someone else says something, it eventually gets attributed to one of them anyway. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, and finally, I hope this will be a timely topic for someone in 2020. Now, how does one win an election? Well, you got to get a lot of people to pick your name on a ballot. Uh, this is tough. You know, you, you could try to convince a bunch of people to vote for you, um, but that is, uh, that's hard to do. People, people are complicated, and no one ever really knows exactly what they're going to do next. Um, one thing that I had fun looking at was cases where people tried to win an election by tricking everyone into picking their name on a ballot. Uh, there have been several elections where people with the same name as another person ran, and so there would be two people on the ballot with the same name, and they hoped they could get enough people to pick their name instead of the, uh, the real candidate, in a sense. Um, generally, this doesn't have a very good track record. People have tried all kinds of gimmicks like this, and usually they get some votes, but not enough to win. Um, the real person usually gets more, the, uh, the candidate who was there before someone before the copycat showed up. But uh, Pennsylvania has elected a lot of people named Bob Casey over the years. Uh, and at least some of those people, it is pretty clear that many of their voters did not intend to vote for that particular Bob Casey. So if you really want to win an election, you can try changing your name to Bob Casey and see if that, uh, see if that works for you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Randall. Listeners, I've been speaking with Randall Monroe, author of How To, Absurd Scientific Advice for Real World Problems, published by our friends at Riverhead Books. Randall, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Once again, I would like to thank Randall Monroe for joining me. Signed copies of How To can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. Our sponsor is Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to www.libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN in the promo code space. That's B-O-O-K-I-N to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support Quail Ridge Books and other independent bookstores in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.